anybody who's a serious Marxist, like Marx, right, would not not change for 150 years. It's just ridiculous. He would if he knew he was right, Michael, and we all know he's right. Listen, <laughs> let, <laughs> let me just... Uh, here's what I want to do. I, I want to take a quick break and then do another 30, 40 minutes. Do you have that much time? Or uh, sure. I'm, I'm okay. happy to do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got the one for the public. Now behind closed doors, Michael, we're, I'm going to go after you like a good sectarian Marxist. Should. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fun. And um, we'll have fun. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see- We still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books podcast. All right. So, Michael Albert, welcome back. You are a longtime activist, writer, and organizer, known primarily for your affiliation with Z Communications and your original writing on and support for participatory economics in a participatory society. You've written a lot of books, uh, articles, um, and even a novel, but one of your books is for us, for Zero Books, and it's entitled No Bosses. Thanks for coming back on, uh, and thanks oh, for writing the book. Uh, thank you for having me on again. Um, so I have these sort of standard questions that I thought we might get out of the way at first, but uh, like the kind of questions that anyone might ask you. So the first question I have here is, how did you and Robin Hanel come to write together and come to formulate participatory economics? Well, <clears throat> we wrote together, or we came together, because I had a high school best friend who went to Harvard. I went to MIT, and that person who was my friend roomed with Robin in the freshman dorm. And mm -hmm. so I met Robin. And... Uh, you know, we got along very well, and we had similar politics, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, so we're friends, right? And mm -hmm. we're becoming more and more involved in the uh, movements of the times. And I guess he was in the class of 68, and I was in the class of 69. So he was one year older. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're working together in the student movement in Cambridge and greater Boston, and we are constantly encountering, well, not constantly, that's a slight exaggeration, but we're frequently encountering people who are saying, basically, uh, you know, I get what you're against. It's not complicated. <laughs> I understand you don't mm -hmm. like X, Y, and Z, what we're all familiar with. But what are you for? Because if you don't have anything that you can offer instead you got no right to be sounding off so much, in essence. Mm -hmm. And so the the request for vision was, in some sense, a request for us to shut up yeah. about uh, the war and everything else, right? Hmm. And so, of course, we thought that that was totally ridiculous and unreasonable and that uh, uh, 
I, I think I put it this way once. I said, you know, you don't have to have an alternative uh, for dealing with cotton and uh, uh, so on and so forth to be an abolitionist against slavery. Uh, you don't have to have every answer up front. Mm-hmm. And I think that's technically right. Uh, but I began to feel that it was strategically wrong. Uh, and that a lot of the people who were asking or who felt the question uh, felt it legitimately. And they were basically saying, look, you know, you want me to become involved in social movements that take time and effort and energy and even involve risk, uh, risk of losing friends, risks of problems with jobs and risks with law. And I don't want to do that if it's not going anywhere. And that was a legitimate, you know, uh, uh, reason. And the absence of compelling answers, I felt, was crippling. I actually mm-hmm. think it's become more crippling since. It was less crippling then. But in any event, that's what spurred Robin and I to uh, start so, addressing that. So you were attempting to set out to plan uh, an alternative to capitalist relations as the answer to people who were saying, if you don't like the system as it is, you know, what are you going to do to replace it? Basically, basically that was the initial impetus, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long did it take you guys to work that out? Did you feel as though you were qualified from the get-go or did you have to do a, a lot of study just to write the book or oh, well, have you already been educated? Well, that's sort of interesting. Um, well, we were sort of politically educated by practice and so on. But I was in physics uh, at MIT, but Robin was in economics. Mm -hmm. And I actually remember, for what it's worth, one day uh, in the midst of all this turmoil, this political activism turmoil, uh, Robin and I were in the student union at MIT, and I took him into a small room there. And I said, okay, teach me Marxist economics. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did. And I would say it took about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. I don't really remember exactly. You know, it's mm-hmm. been a long time. Uh, but he did. And uh, neither one of us uh, were too – I mean, we both thought, of course, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of validity and truth and insight, especially compared to the nonsense that prevails in, you know, many classes and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But we weren't convinced that this was a perspective and a framework that was going to deal well with and efficiently and successfully and fully with the kinds of situations that, that we were encountering, including trying to answer the question, what do you want? So right. your answer to whether or not we started, you know, in other words, whether we, we just reeled off the answers so to speak. No, um, you know, we, we read a lot of stuff. Um, uh, council communists, uh, anarchists, very influenced by all of that. Uh, and also, uh, certain Marxist literature. And, mm-hmm. uh, but as time went along, um, actually the first thing that came out of us was just me. It was a book called what is to be undone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was pretty good with titles. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought, I thought that was a clever title. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even in that, you can see the beginning of, of the vision, but it's not developed. And, uh, you know, over time it became more developed. Yeah. Um, so 
do you think that people are more or less open to Paracon today than they were, let's say, in 1991 when your book, The Political Economy of Participatory Economics, was first published? I don't know. Um, when that book was published, Paracon, which yeah, is that the, the first. Is that the big one? No, what's the, what was That's the first book? The first book, uh, I'd have to look and see what the name was. Um, but uh, Okay, well, which one's the definitive book? The, the, one, the, definitive the one I think that was the, the first. Anyway, when Paracon was published. Yeah, okay. Um, there was a big audience for it, but a big audience that wasn't reached very effectively. Um, hmm. The evidence that there was a big audience for it was sort of mind-boggling to me. Um, there's a bookstore in Cambridge that's right across the street from Harvard Yard. It's called mm -hmm. the Harvard Bookstore. And so I went in there after the thing had been published, and there was, you know, the book sitting in a big stack on the table in front, actually more than one stack. Mm -hmm. That was flabbergasting, right? Ordinarily what happens is, I mean, other things I had written would go in in two copies and if they were yeah, out no, they probably not not get replaced yeah um, that's that's the story of my freaking life Mike. right that's all so, of my novels right yeah. so in any event um there they were yeah and i was shocked and so i i went up to the desk and i said what they didn't know who i was so i said what's with the, the that book and they said oh it's really good try it out and i said well how's it doing and then I was really floored because they said, well, it was our second best seller in the last few weeks. And this is the Harvard bookstore. This is a well-traveled bookstore, lots of people. Right. So I said, well, what, what sold more? And there was a Gresham book that had come out at the, around uh, the right, same right, time, right, which right. sold more. But that was all. Yeah. I said, I, I can't really? And they persisted with that. And what it said to me was that – and it's not just that book, right? But that left books that really were addressing something that, you know, people cared about, if put front and center, if given, you know, the space and the momentum, uh, would do really well. And mm -hmm. that the problem wasn't the, the, the relevance or the, you know, the, the potential audience of the books. The problem was visibility. Uh, in the form of, well, in that form was one possibility, but also in the form of, of prominent reviews, discussions, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been that way ever since. And, you know, what the relative audience is now, it might be larger. Um, it depends how you calculate these things. So, I mean, take all the people who are willing to vote for Bernie Sanders and, and had he run for president, all the people who would have been willing to vote for him. And he calls himself a socialist. So the idea of, and, uh, and then there are these polls that say that, you know, more than 50% of young people identify more with socialism than with capitalism. Okay. So it isn't clear what they're actually identifying with. It's probably social democracy or it's probably just, I don't like what's going on, mm -hmm. but in any event, no boss is a new economy for a better world. That's an audience. Um, however, and this, of course, is your part of this. Well, it's partly my part of this book, too. Uh, you know, how do you put it in front of people? And how do you put it in front of people without it being so, seeming to be so 
discordant to to reality. See, I mean, to be from outer space, you know. How do you put it in front of people in a way that people will look and say, ah, that looks what good. Do you, what do you think about, um, I mean, obviously, I think it's, it's if you have a, a, a book placed on a table at the very front of a bookstore in big stacks, that communicates to the people walking in that this is a big mainstream book that, yeah. that the bookstore yeah. thinks should sell. But like in the world of politics and the larger world, it seems like what you need to have is somebody who's proposing a policy like Andrew Yang put UBI on the table, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in a way that it hadn't been for a long time. Um, I'm not a fan or proponent of UBI, but it was a kind of kooky idea when he started his campaign and now it's being discussed more, much more seriously. Can you think of a way someone might take up Paracon as a plank in a political campaign as a, as a part of well, the policy proposal. I, I think it would be a little early to, you know, to do that. We're not, we're not on the edge of changing the whole economy. Right. But you mm-hmm. could, you know, around any number of issues. So take for instance, raising the minimum wage, you can fight for a higher minimum wage for $15 or 20 or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And you and so you're fighting for that particular thing. But the way you fight for it, you can talk about, well, what should be the norm of remuneration in a good economy, in a good society? What should be the way we do it? We're demanding this now, but what should what what's the real reason behind it? And the same thing could be done vis-a-vis demands for uh, you know, ecological constraints on the market system or, uh, con- you know, a shorter work there, whatever you want to talk about. The issue is what makes talking about those things more than a reform reformist uh, is that the way you do it and the way you organize for it, instead of it being an end and it leading nowhere further, Still a good thing if you win, but it leading nowhere further. Instead of that, you organize for it and you talk about it and you educate around it in a way that when you win, leaves you wanting more, you know, because now you have changed values and you have changed attitudes about what is really desirable, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, yes, I think it can be connected to what's going on. Um so I'm going to go meta here and let people see behind the curtain a little bit and ask you a question as your publicist. Okay. Okay. Um, you can ask me anything you want. Doug. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know. I know. But I'm, I'm telling when I tell you these things, I'm also talking to the audience. To the audience. Right? Right. <laughs> I'm telling I'm. I understand. It's all a performance. Don't look behind the curtain for real, Michael. Right. Okay. So here, here's the thing. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to, let's say I'm going to write an email and I should try this. I haven't actually ever done this. I don't know why, but let's say I'm going to write an email to good morning America. Okay. And I'm going to say, you should have Michael Albert on because he has something to tell the American people uh, that they really need to hear. What should I compare you to, or who should I mention that they would understand? (laughs) You know, like I should say, Michael Albert, you know, every I like the first thing that came to mind from my last question is like, you know, you think UBI is radical. Michael Albert has a plan for America that will, you know, that will give everyone a living wage and 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 the power to live their lives the way they want to. Okay, so that part's fine, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The comparison to somebody. 
there, I'm not really sure. I mean, you could, you could, you could say. <laughs> you see the problem now. Now we need yeah, Noam Chomsky yeah. with manufacturing consent to walk in and explain why it is so hard to get ideas like yours onto. Right. Good I mean, it's not America. well that I can explain. I mean, you know, that's not hard to understand. Mm -hmm. But you're asking a very specific question, which is a good way to approach things like mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. which is in the course of saying to somebody, I don't think Good Morning America is likely going to happen, but in the course <laughs> of saying to uh, Russell Brand or mm -hmm. to um, Joe Rogan or to, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, look, I got this book coming out from this guy um, and it's about a, no bosses, it's about a new economy for uh, a better world. And countless people now are worried about this. They're worried about it because not just of the economy sort of being in crisis and creating the crisis of the climate, you know, uh, mm -hmm. of global warming mm -hmm. and ecological disaster, which threatens humanity mm -hmm. uh, and literally survival, but also because they, people have, come to understand that they shouldn't have to spend their whole life alienated and lacking dignity and lacking a degree of control that these things are beginning to to resonate with people that there could be more to life that you don't have to be subject to bosses all the time you don't have to you know have no control over your life etc and and this this guy's got this uh book uh, which which puts forth a view that you know considerable number of people around the world support that, and then you can continue on with uh, you know a very brief account of what's in the book or something. But comparing it to a person, I guess you could say something like, in the same way. Oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because if it's going to be a, a person who's known, it has to be somebody who's famous. And then it sounds like I'm comparing myself to that famous person. Yeah. Like the not. same way that Jesus Christ brought yeah, you a right. new relationship right. to God. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, I, that was where my goal. I wasn't going to Jesus Christ, but I was going to, well, Martin Luther King woke us up and, and, oh, and you know. Even more arrogant up. than Jesus Christ, Martin right, Luther uh, King. Right. <laughs> uh, or, um, or Chomsky on foreign policy or et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. You know. mm -hmm. um, and, and look, the truth is most of these things are not rocket science, right? So mm -hmm. participatory economics, it's not like coming up with, you know, general relativity or something. It isn't, it, you know, it's nothing like that. The only thing hard about it, and I'm not even sure that's an apt word, but if we're going to use it, the only thing hard about it is that it's way outside the box. It's not that it's, in, you know, it's, it's hard calculation. It's hard thought. It's hard logic. It's not any of that. It's just that it's so different from what is commonplace and what is, you know, considered just the way it is, inevitable, mm -hmm. that it's hard to get to it. But mm -hmm. that's all. Uh, mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. when we, I mean, we were lucky enough to come out of the 60s. And that sort of made us, in a way, immune to that. I mean, honestly, in other words, coming through that whole process, um, we weren't wired into any prior conceptions. Um, and if anything, you know, we were inclined to challenge everything. 
And so the fact that it was common sense that, you know, you had to have a division of labor like we have, or you had to have markets or people had to earn widely disparate amounts for incentive. I mean, those views, they didn't hold us for 10 seconds. I mean, they just Mm -hmm. didn't, right? Mm -hmm. They were untried shibboleths of economics, which we didn't accept. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it it wasn't all that hard. It really wasn't. The hard task is the other one, the one that you confront. Mm -hmm. The hard task was and remains getting it you know, getting this vision or any other vision, if this one isn't as good as I hope it is, but but getting getting a vision taken seriously and getting people uh, to share it and to uh, utilize it and figuring out what to do in the present. That's the you hard know, task. You know, before we published your book, we published a different book by a man who just passed away, Fritjof Bergman. He wrote a book called uh, New Work, New Culture. I haven't and, read it, sorry. Yeah, it, well, yeah. I didn't think you would have. Uh, not enough people have. We didn't do right <laughs> by him, you know? But um, but it was his life work, and he had developed a, a, a plan to change the nature of work so that people would find primarily the big idea from the book, and it's a big, thick book, and he explains everything in a lot of detail. It's philosophical, but the main idea is if you give people work that they find personally meaningful, mm-hmm that they can, you know, then they can create worlds for themselves. They can create lives for themselves that will be much more rewarding than if you focus on mass production and efficiency and things right. like that. And, and, um, and he also was interested in ecology. So it was emphasized the, what's personally meaningful for the individual and the community, find reusable uh, materials and uh, techniques and so on to to do the work Mm -hmm. um and he was actually taking this to corporations and to to ngos and had uh some success and he'd gone to prisons and worked with prisoners on the ideas in his book and things like that do you um think that uh that paracon might also be able to be implemented in stages now or that has it been taken up by activists in some way or another already sure uh, i mean yeah there are people in lots of different places in the world who subscribe to i don't know what word to use you know who mm-hmm. are advocates of this particular economic vision yes there's an organization called real utopia and it's at realutopia.org on the internet mm-hmm. and that's just started um and that was put together by a couple of folks in uh the uk you know in england and uh uh, it's got about 40 people already who are networking together, all of whom are supporters of not just participatory economics, but participatory society, the whole broader um, culture, kinship, politics, and so on. And uh, and there's more than that. There are other people, of course. There are lots of people in various places. But it is true that it it's hard in two ways i think there are two big hurdles if we if we assume for a minute and it's an assumption that this vision is really solid 
this vision is really, you know, when people talk about socialism, when people talk about controlling their own lives, when people talk about anarchism and participation and self-management, this is the this is what actually delivers it. This is a set of institutions that are consistent with these aspirations of people on the left. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's assume that's the case for a minute. Even if that's the case. Um, it's still a hard task, and I think the two, maybe the two hardest things about it, are the one that you addressed already. I don't in connecting it to daily activity now, right? In other words, so that you're being involved with it contributes to and aids what you're doing now, so you have a real incentive to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so that's one thing. The second thing is maybe idiosyncratic to my view of it. Um, In the same way that uh, uh, what had been called socialism, and I guess some people still call it socialism, the 20th century brand, um, certainly challenged owners, challenged capital, and was therefore never supported by them with a few except like angles was a capitalist with a few exceptions mm-hmm. uh, but capitalists by and large saw their interest as not not furthered or advanced but instead challenged and threatened by this thing and so they opposed it vigorously mm-hmm. and so you wouldn't expect to see uh i mean we we totally understand you wouldn't expect to see institutions that are ruled by owners, right, taking up and promoting and making visible uh, even that kind of socialist formulation. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so the second thing that's a problem for the participatory economics, I think, is that it adds a new dimension to that. So it's not only anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. That is, it not only says, look, we have to get rid of the basis for the running the whole show. And that basis is private ownership of the means of production. And so we have to do away with that. Okay, so now participatory economics, like uh, socialism over the past hundred years, you know, for for all the way back, has owners as an enemy Mm -hmm. and impeding the likelihood of it reaching an audience. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the problem is that participatory economics goes another step, and it says, look, there's a class between owners and workers, and that class, we call it the coordinator class. Once upon a time, and it, uh, Barbara and John Aaron, I called it the professional managerial class. Anarchists mm-hmm. way back much earlier called it the intelligentsia. Um, we didn't like either of those two formulations, so we called the coordinator class. Maybe not mm-hmm. a good name, but that's what we called it. And what we had in mind was that people who, by virtue of their position in the economy, which is to say by virtue of the implications of their economic activity for them, mm-hmm. dominate other people. So it was a set of people who held empowering work, who did empowering work. They did tasks in their job that gave them information that gave them connections to other people, social ties that are Mm -hmm. empowering, um, confidence, um, uh, access to, you know, immediate decision-making and so on. And then there was another set of, of tasks that were virtually the opposite. They de-skilled people 
instead of giving them skills that especially skills associated with decision making they de-skill people they fragmented people they reduce people's confidence they um, reduce people's connections and so on and so for us that's that's another class between labor and capital and in fact the thing one of the things that seriously propelled i suppose you could say uh, participatory economics was we had spent a lot of time um, looking at the old formulations, looking at Marxism, looking at Marxism-Leninism, looking at anarchism, and also looking at the societies. Uh, and so we had written things like unorthodox Marxism um, or Marxism and socialist theory and socialism today and tomorrow. These were books looking at all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we dis- came to was that, look, this thing – it's, it's, it did get rid of owners, but it's not classless. It has a ruling class, and the ruling class is this coordinator class. So what mm-hmm. happens with participatory economics is it not only irritates the hell out of owners, mm-hmm. but a subset of this other group, coordinator class, it irritates, and it irritates, it, it's like a natural gut reaction. It's called class interests and class consciousness. They mm-hmm see and understand that there's something going on here that threatens a part of their advantage or part of their dominance. Um, now, a, sub, a, a subset of that set of people actually will support it. Myself, right? Uh, actually will support it like Angle supported, you know, old style. Mm-hmm. But another subset won't. And that other subset, I think... Not maliciously, not um, trying to defend hierarchy per se, but sort of automatically um, is uh, dislikes, all right, thinks it will be destructive, right, to eliminate that particular hierarchy. So you can imagine it in a left institution. Right. Forget it. Take a, a left media institution. Yeah. Let's say zero books. Well, <laughs> in the case of zero books, you have to shoot yourself. No. So. No, in, <laughs> right. Right. In, in, no, I was just thinking, you know, I was you mean larger the, for the 20 larger. years. Yeah. And I and now I have a little bit of power right. and authority and I wouldn't want to share it with everyone else. I want to be able to decide things. Right. It's the first time in my life, really, right. at, at a, as a professional, I can do that. Understood. So, and, yeah. and all right, another recent example was uh, Nathan Robinson. And uh, yeah, I knew you were going to bring him what's up. What's it called I, again? Current Affairs. Current I, affairs. I just wanted to put myself in front of him, take a bullet before okay. he got shot. Very <laughs> sweet of you. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm not going to shoot him either or you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, it's, it's not. The issue is the issue that's being brought up is can we have institutions on the left and eventually in a whole society in which we don't have 20% ruling 80%. Okay, so that's going to mean that the 20% or the people who thought they were going to be the 20%, that the 20% have less dominance, let's call it. And in the case of participatory economics, they're going to have to do a job that's more mixed than they were doing before, that uh, has a... Has a, um, a a fair share, let's call it, mm-hmm. of disempowering tasks in it so that other people can do jobs that have a fair share of empowering tasks. 
so that we're all prepared by our work and our prior training for work uh, to participate and to participate confidently and intelligently in decision-making. Okay, so I don't... The, the idea that somebody would be horrified by that um, is is the fault of, of, say, the advocates of participatory economics in some sense. That is, if, if the image is that a, a left organization in which some people who founded it probably and who have been involved in it for a long time and have worked their butts off forever and have accumulated lots of skills and connections and not all the kinds of things that are empowering, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that also get things done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, are going to have to lose some of that and people without training are going to have to gain some of that. There'll be this feeling that, wait a minute, you're asking us to, to risk our organization. You're, you're saying to us that these folks are going to do what we're doing, and I don't believe it. I'm, I'm afraid it's going to. And I just want to make one analogy. If you go back to the 60s and you, and you notice that, for example, women said to the movement, I'll give you a very graphic example of it. I was actually chairing an anti-war movement meeting, mm-hmm. a few hundred people, and we're talking about upcoming demonstrations and policies. And suddenly, and this is a true story, suddenly the door opens, and in walks, uh, in walks about, I don't know, 35, 40 women. Um, and they circle the front of the room. One of them says to me, Michael, you better sit down. And uh, I'm not an idiot. I sat down <laughs> and they, and they announced to the room, look, here's the way it's going to be from now on. From now on, the anti-war movement is going to have, is not going to be sexist the way it has been sexist. When there are chairs, they're going to be at least half women. When there is a decision-making body, it's going to be at least half women. When people go out to speak, it's going to be at least half women. Not only that, what we speak about is going to include issues of gender, even while it's attacking the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And the reaction of men at the time um, was by and large, and of some women also, right? Not, not only men, uh, was by and large, wait a second, we're bombing the shit out of the Vietnamese. Yeah, that's what that, that's what just flashed through my mind. How right. much more successful was the peace movement for that move? Right. We're bombing the shit out of the Vietnamese. And they're saying, right, you're asking us to sacrifice some of the what we can what we can generate on behalf of and in support of the Vietnamese for this nonsense some of them would say, or others would say, for this, you know, justifiable concern, but let's not, you know, risk too much for this concern. All right, now the reality was that that the women were right, that the the creation of a movement that that would be stronger and would be better able to function and would sustain itself longer depended upon these kinds of changes. And so now if we take the analogy to the other case, right? Mm-hmm. In the short run, 
let's say you know you and I are running a publishing house. Mm-hmm. We've got ten other workers there, and we're doing most of the empowering stuff. Twenty percent, eight other workers, and the eight other workers are doing a lot of you know moving stuff around and typesetting and whatever they're doing, right? But it's not very empowering. And they come along and say, you know, it gets time for this to change, like the women did. And they say, you know, we're for classlessness, you're for classlessness. This is not classless, right? And we think uh, that it also is not as efficient and as effective as it could be. It is not utilizing the talents that we have. It is, in fact, and it has tensions between us that needn't be there, and so on and so forth. Now, okay, that's an argument. One could say it's wrong. I think it's right. When South End Press came along, uh, this was a publishing house that we did, you know, a long time ago. Um, it was incredibly efficient. Uh, it had very few people. It had very few resources. It had almost, you know, no money. Um, it ran in a way, this was actually before participatory economics had been codified, so to speak, you know, had been spelled out fully. What happened is we sat around, we were all movement people, and we sat around in a room and we said, what are we going to do? And uh, how are we going to organize ourselves? People said democratically, people should have a say, and so on. And then somebody pointed out rightly, uh, for example, look, Michael's good friends with Chomsky. Uh, He can... You know, maybe he wouldn't want to, but he could use that to get his way on issue after issue. And -and so-and-so is the one who knows the potential donor and could use that. So, in other words, it wasn't that there was a gigantic disparity of prior training. There was some, right? But but people could have, have access to the empowering facets of this small publishing house and rise in it as a result, and then other people. And we decided against all that. And this was the origin of, of what became balanced job complexes. We decided to, we figured out what the tasks were, and we divided them among us into jobs that were doable. person could do them. It wasn't, you know, you have to do one task over here and one task over here. That are, you know, a set of tasks that people could do such that everybody would be able to, to function. And everybody did do editorial. Everybody did choose books. Everybody did, you know, the critical publishing things. And then also everybody did typesetting, which in those days was the most onerous, difficult, you know, everybody did that. I mean, I did mm-hmm. as much or more typesetting than anybody else did. You know, so... And that was the origin of, uh, that was the practical origin of the idea of balanced job complexes. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Let me ask you a question about the women who came in to the peace sure. and made that quit demand. Was there a process? Uh, I mean, did this organization have a, a membership that voted? No. In people? It, well, yes and no, right? The, the, the actual group that was there, was just a mass meeting of people around an upcoming demonstration. So no, it wasn't a membership organization. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, people knew each other. I mean, these are different times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were all in the same tribe. I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, right? Right. Um, and well, so, there wasn't really an organization. No. Uh, 
there. It was just a, a group meeting in a community. Well, but right. this same thing happened in organizations. I mean, well, you know, if it happened in SDS if, yeah. chapters. It happened in yeah. But you if know. you're an SDS and a group it of happened, people, I don't, I don't it care. It happened in the old mole, which was a publication. Right. Right. So in other words, the old, I was a student at the time, but it happened in the old mole, which was a a local newspaper, a radical, very radical newspaper in Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you're okay, let's say you're in the old mole, or you're, or, or let's say you're an SDS, and which is I, if I'm remembering correctly, I wasn't part of it, but you know that's before my time, just. But that's a membership organization. You have it's democratic. There are votes on on a slate mm -hmm. of, of representatives and so on. And a group of people come in and say, on the basis of our gender, we are going to demand that ha half of the current leadership that's been duly elected by the membership steps down. Um, I'm not so sure that that's a progressive thing at all. I would say what depends, should be done. Depends how you do should, it. Yeah, to, yeah, what should be done is someone should make a proposal, then put it to the membership of a way to train and and diversify. Yeah, the, but this the, thing wasn't that. Right? In other yeah. words, this thing wasn't a membership. It wasn't a voting. You know, it wasn't like that. It was basically mm -hmm. these women saying to the movement in Cambridge, right, the anti-war movement, which wasn't an organization. It was a movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, they were basically saying, look, the movement has to change. And this is what we're saying. And, mm -hmm. and we're in the same way that you're willing to disrupt activities on behalf of, you know, fighting the war. We're willing to disrupt activities on behalf of two things. One overcoming sexism and two we think also fighting the war because we think the war will be fought more much more successfully in other words the, the against the war will be yeah, right. carried yeah, right. out much more successfully um if we do it in this manner okay so the so if we come back to the present yeah come back to the present and because the present situation is more complicated right so if you say i mean the word that would be used on the left is transition, right? So in other words, let's say you have a, a pretty big organization. So let's say you have a hundred person organization and there's 20 people who really are mon monopolizing decision-making power. You might even have democratic votes, but everybody can predict how the vote's going to go because the, that 20, that group of 20 wields so much influence and so much power because it has the information, it comes to the meeting with, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so uh, let's say it's the it's a group among the the eighty who basically say we need to 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 figure out what we have to do about our organization, and the twenty percent says why, and the eighty percent says, well, for starters, count the number of working class people in this organization, mm -hmm. and why why is it so low? We understood once upon a time that the number of women in the organization was so low because the organization was sexist and it, it wasn't attractive. It was in fact debilitating and the number of blacks in the organization or it was low. Why? Because it was, and, and what we're saying to you is the same thing is true. Now working people understand what we're talking about. They understand the difference between themselves and doctors and lawyers and engineers and managers and decision makers to whom they are, you know, subject, uh, uh, you know, 
their, their lives are sort of designed and, and uh, limited and organized by those people. And they understand that. I'll tell you another little story, uh, and it is relevant. Um, I have to try and do this without. Anyway, um, Lydia Sargent's son, one of her sons, I won't go into detail about the people, but he had a, an almost gut reaction to the uh, no nukes movement. He's critical of it. And didn't, couldn't, couldn't sort of relate to it. Um, and it wasn't no, no nuclear bombs or no nuclear um, no, plants. No, no nuclear plants. Okay. That's what was called no nukes. That was mm. anyway. Um, and so did a lot of other people and lots of working people. And I spent some time trying to think about, okay, so how, what, how does that work? Right. How, how do it's one, it's one thing for women to see there's no women or for blacks to see there's no blacks or for blacks to see the blacks are all in the back moving around the boxes. Right. And none of them are playing any other role. So it's easy to see that. Um, It seems like it's harder to see the working class thing. But for instance, in that movement, there was a tremendous focus on the danger and the threat that nuclear reactors posed in the form of a meltdown or the waste. And... And so the argument went, well, because of that, they have to be shut down. And so the, uh, it was a big movement. Very large oh, I remember. Movement at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, it's not that it was wrong, although th- that even could be argued, but it, I don't think it's that it was wrong. But what was evident was the movement never sort of calculated, okay, what about coal mines, Right. What's the health effect of coal mines as compared to nuclear reactors? Well, What's the pretty, health pretty of- horrible. Yeah, uh, absolutely prob- horrible. Probably worse than, than a worse. nuclear power. Worse, exactly power. right. But that isn't noticed, right? And so the question because becomes... Because it doesn't affect upper middle class people in their exactly. homes. And so, but working people understand mm-hmm. that. And that's what that person's, Lydia's son's antipathy to... That's what fueled it, right? That's class consciousness that isn't out of a book. You just feel it, right? And it goes on both sides. So um, it's what I was trying to describe, uh, that a coordinator class person can just feel there's something about this participatory economics thing that rubs me wrong. So I'll ridicule it, right? Or I'll dismiss it. Without even looking, really. Yeah. Uh, so that's one kind of class consciousness. And then the other kind of class consciousness is there's something about this goddamn movement, the way these people carry themselves, the way they, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Mm-hmm. I taught in prison once, and one of the prisoners there taught me a lesson that I never forgot. He said to me, you know, when you walk down the street and there's a person walking toward you that is almost a a natural uh, understood rule of who gets out of the way. And he said, it isn't just, you know, the black gets out of the way of the white. This is a long time ago or Mm -hmm. the, 
or the woman gets out of the way for the man. It's also, and you can see it in dress, and you can see, you know, so the, the signs are there. It's that this coordinator class group, we were talking about it in this prison class, um, is deferred to by working class people who get out of the way. Um, so hmm. class, this kind of class consciousness is real. And the, the striking when thing I w- is... I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. I, was gonna say, I always is, get out of the way. I just always am the one getting out of the way. <laughs> the striking thing is that um, working people have have nowadays, I think, a more gut class consciousness of this sort mm-hmm. about doctors, lawyers, engineers, et cetera, et cetera, than about owners. Why? Because they never encounter owners, right? They mm. don't. They, they just never. No owner ever fucks them over personally right institutionally yes structurally yes but they never encounter them they never have that gut visceral experience uh and they do with the other group can i tell you and, a and that's story what trump plays to i know can i can i tell you a little story off to the yeah. side of that yeah the one time in my life where i really felt like um the struggle for socialism and when the working class uh had some teeth to it what really mattered was when I was about 25, 26 years old. Um, I think I was 25 years old. I was working at a physician's answering service, taking emergency calls. We're all untrained. None of us are. You, know, you have a heart attack. You call us up. We ask you, is it an emergency? Because we can't make that decision. <laughs> um, no kidding. But anyway, I'm there uh, and I'm <laughs> sitting on my lunch break and I'm reading some uh, tract like uh abolish the uh, abolish the the capitalist class is on the you know front of it right and and the guy who ran the company the physician's answering service he had ne- he was almost never there but right. he was there he, and he saw me on my lunch break and he saw what i was reading and he could not help himself but to come up to me and say that's total garbage right. you have to know that's complete this place would fall apart this right. place you guys want to take take over you want to do what i do this place would take to fall apart. Right. And I was just like, Oh really? You're, you're scared. I had no idea that you would be scared. <laughs> I thought I was pretending. I didn't know. That. Yeah. So, anyway. It's, uh, you know, the other, that that's true actually, that they understand better than we do. Typically the mm-hmm. dangers for themselves. Um, that's both mm-hmm. those classes. Uh, mm-hmm. they, so um, I said earlier something about how it was the fault of the advocates of the vision in mm-hmm. some sense, right? And the reason for that is is because if we put across that we're basically saying, uh, you know, string up the coordinators, string up the lawyers, the doctors, the engineers, et cetera, et cetera, well, of course they're not going to like us, <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. and of course they're going to, you know, the, the the argument that they'll give would be the argument that your guy gave. Yeah, the whole thing will fall apart. That's what mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher was saying. When Thatcher said there's no alternative, she's not saying there is nothing else. She's saying there's no better alternative. Mm-hmm. If you make any changes, things will get worse, any significant changes of that sort. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, the, the, the task, and it's not easy, the task is to address the need for classlessness in a way that doesn't alienate and that in fact speaks to real needs of the coordinator class, the, the, the ruling class, the capitalist class, I don't care about, 
you know, put them in mm -hmm. New York, cut the bridges and let them live however they want. Um, uh, you sound that's that sounds racist to me, Michael. I don't know. I don't like that New York reference. Okay, uh, <laughs> uh, this is a Jew a Jewish thing there. Put him in New York, but anyhow, I know you didn't mean it that way. No, uh, no, of course not. Everybody else leaves. It's just they get Manhattan. I know, I know. But why New? <laughs> but why New York, Michael? What are you saying? Because why? The world? Because Manhattan has bridges all around it. I got you. I know. I right. got That's you. literally what I'm, you know, the know. joke. All right. I Obviously, know. I'm not going to do that. But the no. point is that other group mm -hmm. has to be part of the change. That other group needs to be, to the extent possible, on the side of the effort to change the economy. And so mm -hmm. oh, the, co the coordinator class yeah. has to be there. Yeah. Uh, and will they all be? No, of course they won't. But mm -hmm. a whole lot of them have to be. And actually, we know it's possible because in May of 68 in France, you saw exactly that. You saw that group somehow uh, energized and sort of um, mm -hmm. awakened by all that was going on. And a great, great many of them were coming over. Um, that's well, listen, what I, I, I have a question. Do you think that you and I are part of the coordinator class? Well, the way we are now, right? Mm -hmm. arguably not so much right right uh, but yes i that is the kind of job that you have mm -hmm. the kind of jobs that i've had are typically coordinator class jobs our prior training i don't know yours but mine is ba in philosophy so i don't know if that's training for anything uh, that's training to, to, <laughs> okay but uh, my training was a lot in science and mm -hmm. and so on and that's and then economics and yeah sure coordinator mm -hmm. class so and um and it's partly a mentality it's partly a kind of confidence it's partly a knowledge it can be self you know you you certainly have skills and knowledge and a self-image and so on and so forth I don't know your income. You you might not have parlayed into as doctors and lawyers and engineers do a, a significantly higher than average income, but that's all right. It's still coordinator class. It's just incompetent coordinator class. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, and you and you know firsthand having worked absolutely. With you. <laughs> I, I, well, but I I'm also uh, yeah. you know I've put in more years than you have and probably have less to show okay. materially. Let me let me ask you one question uh, here at the end because we're coming up on 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 an hour. Okay. Um. There's an alternative explanation of class than and than what you've been talking about. I mean, uh -huh. I think everything that you've been talking about so far rings true, especially your example about the 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 uh, kid who really hated nuclear power. Uh, no, he hated the anti nuclear power plant movement because of the way uh, what it said about their views of the working class. Yeah. That was powerful. And I, de I definitely think that's all true, but there's another way to think about the working class, which is just about what their relationship is to the means of production, whether or not they produce commodities. So this classic e political economic yeah, right. um, Marxist approach. Um, and, you know, by that standard, sometimes people who make a lot of money and have some social power are working class. And sometimes if you use people, that definition, yes. Right, right. And sometimes right. people who, uh, uh, don't make very much money and don't feel that they have much power are part of the coordinating class, like maybe you and you and me. Um, and uh, it, I feel like as a Marxist that while the politics has to take account of this other 
understanding of class, mm-hmm. the one you're talking about, mm-hmm. the the um, actual changes in struggle have to understand the Marxist under the version of, okay. of class. Let me ask you a couple of questions, okay? Mm-hmm. So somebody comes along, forget the textbooks and forget the, you know, the Bibles, right? Uh, the economy, the person says the economy yields differentiations among the actors in it that matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. So far we agree. The economy causes those differentiations uh, to, to demarcate people into groups that have contrary interests and that clash over those interests. Mm-hmm. So far we agree. Now the person says, okay, one of the things that does that, and I think it's the only thing the person says, or the key thing, is the relationships and means of production. Uh, the extent to which you own the means of production or you own only your ability to do work and you sell it. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is, oh, well, I agree. That is a feature, let's call it, of, of an economy that does demarcate into classes. I agree. But the reason it does that is because it intrinsically gives, as we said, one group a set of interests, another group a different set of interests. Um, they, they clash. Um, they see each other differently, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and so I come along and say, this is what we did back when it was, back when, you know, Barbara and John Aaron wrote their piece, and then we did a book called Between Labor and Capital at South End Press, and Robert and I wrote a piece, and that was the first time we talked about this. And what we're basically saying is, yes, that's true. But there's another thing about the way an economy is organized and its intrinsic implications for the people functioning in it that can demarcate people into opposed groups. Now, are they important groups? Maybe not, right? So, but the thing that we were talking about wasn't that some people work in the city and what some people work in the country or that some people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the people are empowered by what they're doing and some people aren't, mm-hmm. uh, are disempowered. And our claim was that seems to us to be not like, you know, working with your hands or not working with your, you know, not a hundred different things that we could name, but something that's up there with the, with that ownership one mm-hmm. in the sense of demarcating a big difference, 20% and 80%. Mm-hmm. But is it important? And so the answer for why the, the private property one is important is because, well, hell, the owners can become the ruling class. We have that new phrase. So mm-hmm. and the, where they are, you know, they're not alone influential, but they basically dominate the economic life of the country. Mm-hmm. And that makes that class division important. I agree. But hello, the division into the empowered and the disempowered, it turns out that once you get rid of the owning class, has the exact same result. The empowered becomes the new ruling class, dominating economic life. And the disempowered becomes, well, still the working class, mm-hmm. dominating. So this was, I mean, basically our relationship to Marxism all the way back when had two key parts. One part was, has become sort of 
you know, the, the, the accepted norm nowadays by most people. And that mm-hmm. part, and in those days it wasn't. That part was, well, wait a second. Economics is important, but so is race, so is gender, so is power. And, uh, you know, intersectionality, we called, we had different names for it. But it was the mm-hmm. same. Okay, so that was one concern we had with Marxism, that, yes, the economy casts a field of influence which affects all sides of life. But you know what? So does kinship. And so, and, you know, and it impacts the economy like the economy impacts family and so on and so forth. But the mm-hmm. second one, which was, we thought, in a sense, more fundamental, because we thought that the first one, and we talked about it this way, that the first problem could be accommodated, that enlightened Marxists, let's call them, or Marxists with their eyes open, could say, okay, you know, not a big deal for us. We've got this focus on on the economy, but all that other stuff isn't just secondary or peripheral or whatever. It's important too, and we can. T- and so we had Marxist feminism, and we had socialist feminism, and we had nationalist Marxism, and we had mm-hmm. anarcho communism, and mm-hmm. that's what that was. That was taking into account more than one sphere of life as important. So that was one of mm-hmm. our concerns about Marxism. But the other one was this class issue. And that we feared was going to prove much more difficult, that Marxists were going to resist that innovation, so to speak. And that has proved true. And it's too bad because it, it, it has created a situation in which just like once upon a time, the sexism on the left limited the number of females. The racism on the left limited the number of, say, in the United States, blacks. Well, the classism on the left limits the number of working people relating. It's ironic that Marxists should be the ones resisting it's, your class analysis. It, isn't it? It's pretty <laughs> incredible. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, a frustration of your life. Well, that's a frustration of my life. Yeah, right. um, you know, it's, see, I don't think I'm, you know, people would say, he's anti-Marxist. He's, you know, what does it mean, right? Anybody who's a serious Marxist, like Marx, right, would not not change for 150 years. It's just ridiculous. He would if he knew he was right, Michael, and we all know he's right. Listen, <laughs> let, let me just, uh, here's what I want to do. I, I want to take a quick break and then do another 30, 40 minutes. Do you have that much time? Or uh, sure. I'm, okay. I'm happy to do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got the one for the public. Now behind closed doors, Michael, we're, I'm going to go after you like a good sectarian Marxist should. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fun. And um, we'll have fun. Thanks for watching this Zero Books video. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video. You should also consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books book club and help us to continue making online content from the left.